electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, a wake-up call for banks. Former FDIC Chair Sheila Baer sounding the alarm in the wake of the Archegos implosion. Why she says it's not a matter of if, but when something like this happens again. Plus, hitting the jackpot, New York State giving the green light for online sports betting. So should you go all in on this trade? And later, Elon Musk, Kathy Wood, and the Buffett Indicator. What two of the most captivating figures in the market tweeted that got our attention. We start off with new developments in the aftermath of the Archegos implosion. We've got exclusive new reporting on how one big bank dodged a major bullet just hours before the hedge fund went bust. CNBC.com's Hugh Son just broke the story on our website. Hugh, good to see you. Hi, Melissa. So it was Morgan Stanley that dodged the bullet here. How'd they do it? Yeah, I mean, look, it's been clear from the beginning uh, that Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs were uh, the quickest to act. They, they dodged the bullet. I, I think the narrative up to this point was that, you know, they had this uh, meeting between the primes and between Bill Huang, you know, the, the Archegos uh, founder, on Thursday, March 25th, to sort of declare a ceasefire. And that the very next day, Goldman Sachs was, you know, first out there selling huge, huge blocks of stock. Well, that wasn't exactly the full story, Melissa. So as we report on CNBC.com exclusively, Morgan Stanley was out March 25th, which is Thursday night, moving huge, huge uh, you know, blocks of stock, about $5 billion worth of stock in Archegos names like Baidu and Tencent Music. And it, yet they did it very quietly. They did it with a handful of less than a half a dozen uh, hedge fund counterparties. And that this was something that helped them remove the risk that they faced. And they did it you know, Thursday earlier than everybody else knew. So what's your sense as to why Credit Suisse was left out of this party? <laughs> We're just learning today that they're going to take a $4.7 billion loss. We know that just last night they were liquidating the rest of their exposure to Archegos. Just last night. I mean, this is weeks later. You know, it's, it's hard to explain other than an outsider like me saying that it is perhaps a sign of uh, dysfunction of the left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing in the case of Credit Suisse, of not uh, having a culture in which um, risk management is elevated to a high enough position where they can act and act quickly and decisively. Um, you know, the way we had heard, to bring it back to the Morgan Stanley story, the way we had heard about it, essentially, you know, is that, you know, when they shifted a lot of, you know, the risk to these hedge funds, uh, you know, the hedge funds were not thrilled ultimately because they didn't know the extent of the selling that was just about to happen the very next day, the tens of billions of dollars of share sales that were going to happen, you know, and this huge flood of sales that were going to happen the very next day. So word got out, you know, ultimately. So it seems like the U.S. banks, at least, who largely dodged this so-called bullet, does that remove the regulatory target on their backs? I mean, if, if it were Morgan Stanley yeah. taking a multi-billion dollar hit, could this be a whole different story when it comes to the banking system once again being the target of new regulations? I, mean, I, think, I, I think so, Melissa. I, I think the answer is 
uh, you know, Morgan Stanley was looking at a, a hit of as much as 10 billion if they did uh, nothing and if they sort of, you know, were more of the Credit Suisse Nomura camp of, you know, sitting on their hands until the losses developed, until everybody else got out of the trades. I think what this shows is, you know, if you look at Morgan Stanley and you could say this about Goldman Sachs as well, probably about JP Morgan as well, that if you have the, you know, the biggest, most robust uh, prime brokers on the street and in the world, that they have the most sophisticated risk management systems, that they are the most battle tested. They've been through this. They've obviously had management who have been through the 2008 crisis, which is only, you know, 11 years ago. And that, you know, perhaps that they are responsible actors, at least when it comes to protecting their own balance sheet against these types of blowups. Hugh, thanks. Great reporting. Hugh Son, CNBC.com. Guy Dami, I'll go to you first. How does that make you feel to hear that Morgan Stanley could have faced a loss of as much as $10 billion? Does it make you feel good about Morgan Stanley's risk management systems in place? Or does it make you feel, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that that could have been the hit to Morgan Stanley? So the answer is yes to both. I mean, I think it's... uh, Listen, good for, hey, good for Morgan Stanley, good for Goldman Sachs. I mean, they had risk management in place. You know, people at very high levels at these banks, something we talked about, value at risk. Every single day those numbers were looked at at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, and I'm pretty sure they look at today. And I'm going to get added at by a lot of people, and there's a reason why certain banks are called second-tier banks, and you're seeing it play out right before your very eyes. And it's fascinating to me. You know, $4.7 billion loss. I mean, I know the world's changed a lot since then, but I think that was the aggregate loss that long-term capital was facing that almost took the entire banking system down back in the day. The other thing, quickly, um, Bill Wang, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, he pleaded guilty nine years ago, I think, and I think they paid fines somewhere between 45 and $60 million. Yet here we are, uh, back in business again. It speaks volumes as to the amount of liquidity that's flying around there. And the fact that people keep going back to the well. That, to me, is a bigger problem. I'm sure Sheila Barrett can speak to that as well when she comes on. Well, let's bring her in right now. Our next guest calls the Archegos implosion a wake-up call for the bank. Sheila Baer is former FDIC chair. She is now the director of the Volcker Alliance. Sheila, great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So does this say to you that the U.S. banking system is terrific in risk management, is terrific in terms of the capital that they have um, stored up since the financial crisis, or does it still tell you that we've got a problem? Well, I think it says we've got a problem. I mean, there was a lot of risk building up in the system, a lot of exposure. Maybe they dodged the bullet, but there are some people apparently on the other side of some of their sales that did not dodge the bullet. Did they have good risk management? It suggests to me they didn't to let this happen to begin with, and maybe they just had better information and were acting more quickly. (laughs) <laughs> in terms of dodging the bullet, you know, whether they acted ethically in this, I don't know. Whether they acted legally, I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot more questions about how they handled this situation. But the fact that they even came this close, I think, suggests that, uh, you know, that their risk management leaves a lot to be desired. Um, I will say, in fairness, though, that market conditions in, you know, <laughs> This forever uh, lasting uh, zero interest rate policies. This is just another indication of how leverage is building up in the system. Capital costs virtually nothing. They can make a lot of money over these arrangements they do with these private offices and hedge funds. It's capital light activity. Uh, and so they're building the bombs. Even if the, when the bombs go off, they aren't hurt. They're still helping to build the bombs. And is that really appropriate uh, for regulated holding company, banking organizations, is that appropriate? Is that safe and sound behavior? I'm hoping this triggers at least some supervisory review. 
but but also you know the market conditions are there the fed really needs to step up and tighten supervision knowing that the uh, the monetary policies that is pursued for so long is creating incentives for exactly this kind of behavior sheila it's karen thanks so much for coming on Hi, the karen. show we always love hearing what your thoughts are um, so here's my question. I, I think sure. it is possible that the banks didn't fully understand the risk they had because there was an adequate disclosure by Archegos and that shouldn't some of that shouldn't there be regulation as well. They might not have realized, wow, we got five yeah. billion dollars risk of Viacom or whatever it is. Yeah. Isn't yeah. there a, yeah. a duty there also? How would you address that? Well, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm skeptical about whether they didn't really know that, that Archegos was, was building these positions with, with multiple prime brokers. Let, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they did not know. They should have known. There should have been disclosure around this. This is one of the areas where our disclosure requirements have not kept pace with the ability to create synthetic positions that can have market-moving impact concentrated in one, one market participant. But because it's a synthetic position as opposed to actually owning the security with some voting power, the, the, the disclosure rules just don't kick in. So this really this has been a problem for a long time. It's, it, it absolutely underscores it needs to be fixed, not just so these prime brokers know about each other's activities, but the investors generally know that there are particular market uh, participants for building up these huge concentrated positions of particular stocks. Hey, Sheila, it's Tim. Thanks for your insights. Great, yeah. especially tonight. And, and um, I want to get at the, the point I think you're making towards the tail end of your first statement around the Fed's role in all this. Banks report uh, right. in a week and a half. Uh, next week, we're going right. to be talking about the numbers. Right. A primary issue will be capital return. Um, it will be yeah. how aggressive they can be on buybacks and dividends. Um, what, what's the Fed's role here? And, and should yeah. investors going into that be concerned about the Fed maybe being a little bit uh, more difficult than just a June 30 all you know, green light? Well, I, I think, I hope that they will, at least their supervisors, they may not be doing more regulation. They, I hope they do. I think there's some areas that they could uh, could improve. But at least from a supervisory perspective, there's going to be much more intensive scrutiny of the prime broker operations and particularly their relationship with hedge funds. So yeah, I think investors, bank investors can and should expect that. Whether it'll hit returns, maybe. I don't, I don't know to what extent uh, that the Fed may tighten its supervisory scrutiny. But, but I will say, I think it's somewhat ironic. Look, we've seen large financial institutions, banks that are in the safety net, that have affiliates with deposit insurance, that have access to the Fed. They have been pulling back on Main Street lending, right? They've been tightening lending. They've been pulling back in mortgage lending, yep. tightening standards for Main Street for loans, right? Loans are capital intensive, and the returns are not so great right now. So they've been pulling back in favor of this more of this capital light activity, which is, which is frankly riskier. And, and I think maybe there's a silver lining on this is that they're getting their fingers singed a bit, you know, catering to these super rich clients when they've been pulling back on Main Street. But here again, the Fed needs to look, and all the bank regulators need to look at the kinds of incentives that are being created by the capital requirements that's currently structured, the failure to tighten margin requirements on these kinds of, you know, high risk derivatives transactions. And, and whether we are expecting enough of our banks to do Main Street lending when the country needs them, especially when they're still doing buybacks and dividends, and, and those have started up again. So that's a longer answer to your question. But yeah, short term, yeah, I think the Fed's going to be tightening up. I think that's a good thing. But longer term, really, is this, is this how, you know, banks are in the safety net. You're outside the safety net. Go do what you want. Do as many stupid things as you want. 
But if you've got this kind of federal safety net support, I think there are some social obligations that go with this. And to be doing this kind of behavior when they're pulling back on, on Main Street, I think, is, is really something regulators and policymakers should be thinking about. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and you said, you know, may, we talk, started the show by saying maybe Goldman and Morgan Stanley or Morgan Stanley dodged a bullet. Maybe the system dodged a bullet. But, you know, I think yeah. you would agree there are probably other um, situations out there we're just not aware of. My question to you is, and yes. I have to preface this by saying I am no fan of our Federal Reserve of central banks. It's, I think it's important to say that. Otherwise, the question seems different. How much of a yeah, how much how much of the brunt of the responsibility does 12 years of zero interest rate policy have to do with yeah. some of the behavior that we're seeing here? Well, I, I think banks should always be held accountable for their actions. They need to look, you're, you're this big, you're this systemic, you need strong risk management. You need to deal with the risk presented by the market that you operate in. That said, yeah, it's created a lot more challenges to manage risk. Again, when capital is so cheap, when the, the incentives to lever up are so strong, when you can make so much money by doing exactly the kinds of transactions that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were doing, this these are the incentives that, that ZERP has created. And I do think if the Fed's going to continue these policies, and clearly they are for the foreseeable future, at least tighten up on the supervisory and, and regulatory side to try to address some of these risks. Just increasing margin requirements, you know, just make it a little more expensive through margin to borrow would, would, would help. But I'm not sure the Fed's thinking in those terms, but, uh, but I hope they do start thinking in those terms. Yeah, along those lines, Sheila, I wanted to follow up on a metaphor that you used, and, and that is they helped build the bombs, and maybe this time the bombs didn't hurt anybody, but they still helped to build them. That implies that at some point the bombs right. will hurt somebody. Is that they somebody? Can. I think they is, is that Please. somebody the system? Well, I, I think it's so. I think there were people that, that owned stock, you know, Viacom and others. Their, their share price took a hit. So I think there was it wasn't like there was no systemic consequence, but there were people who were, you know, collateral damage and all of this. But but I do think this, as I said earlier, this kind of, of, of business that they're doing, it, this is not a one-off. I think they're, they're, they're doing a lot of this kind of business with hedge funds and these private offices that are essentially hedge funds. So, yeah, I mean, I think it could we could see a lot more of this. Uh, whether it happens in tandem, I don't know. There, the lack of transparency makes it difficult for all of us to truly assess what the risks are. But, you know, again, prioritizing, I'd increase margin requirements, I would tighten supervision, I would absolutely fix this loophole we have on our, in our SEC disclosure rules, where if you build up a concentrated position through, through synthetically through a derivative, you don't have to report. That Everybody needs to know that. <laughs> and, uh, and so those are things that are short-term fixes I think could, could help a lot. But now yeah, I think the system is at risk. And the sad truth is we don't really know because there's really no transparency around this kind of business. Sheila, thank you very much. Always yeah, great to hear from My you. Pleasure. Sheila Bear, great. former FDIC Thanks chair. Dan great. Nathan, it sounds like, um, I mean, if, if half the things Sheila said were enacted for the banks, that's, that's not necessarily great for business. Well, it, it, listen, you could ask, is this the sort of business the banks wanted to be doing? And if there was more disclosures, they probably wouldn't be doing that sort of business to that extent. And, you know, we've been asking this question for the last couple of weeks. What sort of activity with total return swaps is, could be systemic? And, and obviously, it seems pretty isolated to this situation. Um, you know, she also used a really interesting term, whether the way that Morgan or Goldman acted were um, ethical. I don't know if she was speaking specifically to those, but they obviously ran ahead of some of their counterparts once that they had mm -hmm. new 
news of what was going on once it seems like Credit Suisse or Nomura brought that to the fore. And not only did they run ahead their competitors that gave them the information, but they also plugged their clients. If you go look at Baidu, yeah. where it closed on March 25th, it closed at $204. The next day it traded as low as 174 And that means that everyone else was out there selling it, including the hedge funds that probably got plugged on that print on Thursday the 25th. So to me, this is also a business not just about printing tickets, because that's what the guys who lost a lot of money were really focused on, but it's also about trust with your clients. And I suspect Goldman and Morgan might have done some damage um, on that front. Last thing I'll just say on this is that if you look at Credit Suisse's disclosure for Q1, you know, they say that they're going to lose a billion dollars in the quarter. And they told you that they lost 4.7 on this trade. That tells you that there's a lot of good things going on in the banking system right now where they're really profitable yeah. and they can absorb those sorts of hits on a quarterly basis. Maybe that's the takeaway. Everything was fantastic for Credit Suisse's business up until Greensill and this. Oh, yeah, Greensill also happened to Credit Suisse just within weeks of, of Archegos imploding. Karen, how do you think about... Um, you know, the, maybe the reputational damage to the banks or the possibility of, of a tighter regulatory environment on the back of this. Mm -hmm. Well, just to go back to your first question, we asked Guy, is it, are you proud of Morgan Stanley yeah. or upset <laughs> that they were in this? Yes to both, right? And I, I, um, I think d also Dan made some great points about, wow, how profitable must they have been to be able to weather this gigantic hit as well as they did and only be down whatever 900 and whatever it is. So I, I think we're going to see some great bank earnings, although the stocks have, have already moved. I also think it takes time to do regulation of the, of the sort that might need to be done here to prevent this. And without the U.S. banks having really been sort of um, seared by this, I don't know how much, uh, you know, I know Elizabeth Warren is upset about it, but I don't know how much it'll take to actually enact any of those potential regulations. But I also think Sheila's point about the SEC needing to really work on the disclosure issues is really important as well, because she made the point not just disclosure for the banks, but mm -hmm. disclosure for shareholders. I mean, they enjoyed the write-up maybe in Viacom. I didn't. I left way too early. Maybe that leaves me a little bitter. I don't know. But I think it's important to, ha to know who's got what. And that would have been important for these banks to know because I can't imagine they knew the full extent of, of the exposure that they had. Now, some of, that's, some of that's on them. And then the last thing, I'm wondering if the people who they stuffed the, uh, you know, the trades to were all the SPAC buyers who made a fortune and this was a little bit of payback. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. Many. All that having been said, I'm long banks going into next week when uh, they start reporting. Yeah. All right, coming up, Elon Musk and Kathy Wood chit-chatting on Twitter. Where else? What these two market influencers said that got us talking. Those details next. But first, snapping higher. The social media stock popping today on the back of an upgrade. Are the gains here to stay or will investors get ghosted? That trade and more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. At Capella University. 
you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. Checkout shares of Snap jumping more than 5% today after an upgrade at Atlantic Equities. Analysts saying Snap is transformed from a messaging-centric app to a broad content platform, resulting in more monetizable time spent on the service. Atlantic taking its price target up to $175 a share. I believe it's $175. That's more than 30% higher from current levels. Tim, what would you make of this call? I think it's a good call. I mean, it's a company that that really has had a big run, although it had pulled back in some of the higher multiple uh, tech sector, you know, pullback. And I think you you definitely at 14 or 15 times 22 revenues. I mean, the multiple um, is really tough. Having said all that, this is a unique platform. They seem to have the best ad growth in in online media. They seem to be more shielded from the regulatory risk based upon the nature of the engagement on their platform. Uh, If you look at their their uh, monetization per DAUs, they're significantly, significantly less entrenched than Facebook, which means they're at one tenth essentially of of that traction, which means they've got a lot of room to go. Um, So I think there's a lot of good news around this story. I think there's a lot of good news priced into it. Um, I wouldn't chase it tomorrow, but I, Snap's here to stay for sure. I made the error. It is $75, of course. Otherwise, that would be quite a price target hike on the part of Atlantic Equities. A key part of their call, um, to Tim's point, Guy, is the notion that ARPU versus its peers had historically been lower. But the analyst there believes that now there's a better chance of narrowing that gap um, between it in terms of average revenue per user and its competitors. Yeah, I agree with that, by the way. And I think Evercore upgraded it or raised their price target as well. I think they report on April 27th. And if you remember, I mean, Snap was being left for dead for a lot of people. And it coincided just about the time that Facebook started to run into all the problems with their advertisers. And that gave Snap an opportunity to get off the mat. And the stock has been a monster ever since. As a matter of fact, I think Dan Nathan did a power pitch in this at least a year, year and a half ago when it was a teenager the stock has pulled back from 73 and a half. I think that was the all-time high in February. Pulled back to 50 bucks, and I think this is a timely upgrade. So I think you can own this stock in earnings at the end of the month. Yeah, I'll quickly go to Dance and see Fast pitched it. Hi, Mel. Um, Hi, well, here's the thing. You know, you mentioned a couple things that I thought were pretty interesting. You talked about the regulatory overhang that some of their larger competitors have. They don't really have that. 85 billion dollar market cap. Great balance sheet here. Today, we just saw Clubhouse be valued at $4 billion. I want to see these guys. If you said that this upgrade is predicated on going from a messaging app to a content creation place, they got to get in the game in some of these things. And they got to look how to go up the food chain as it, as it relates to, I think, demographics in a way. And Clubhouse would have been a great way to do that. We know that obviously Twitter is coming up with a competitor to Clubhouse with spaces. Um, audio seems like the place to be. And I'm really surprised Snap's not making some moves. A, with their stock where it is, B, with that balance sheet, and C, understanding to really get into um, ARPU echelon where they want to compete better with Facebook. It seems like they're going to need some more products. All right. We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Tesla's Elon Musk and ARK Invest's Kathy Wood getting into a tweet storm. What are these two major market influencers chirping about? Those details next. Plus, Coinbase giving investors one last peek at its earnings before going public next week. We'll have those numbers and a lot more. 
when Fast Money returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Something interesting went down on Twitter last night. It got all of us here on the desk talking. Two of the most captivating figures in the market were going back and forth about valuations. It all started when Elon Musk tweeted at ARK Invest Kathy Wood asking, what do you think of the unusually high ratio of S&P market cap to GDP? Well, Wood replied, GDP statistics evolved during the industrial age and do not seem to be keeping up with the digital age. Thanks to productivity, real GDP growth probably is higher and inflation lower than reported, suggesting that the quality of earnings has increased significantly. Take a look at how that ratio has changed over time. In 1990, the ratio of total S&P market cap to GDP was about 0.4. It then hit a high of 1.2 during the dot-com boom before pulling back. It's now at about 1.6. Karen, you actually dip your toe into this tweet storm. What's your take on this? My take on it is that, it, that it's a red herring, that, that is a, it's a, it's, there's so many reasons why it's not relevant. For one thing, GDP doesn't at all reflect a change in the value of assets, right? Only a change, only, so if, if the value of all houses goes up, it's not reflected in GDP. The other thing is it doesn't reflect, you know, um, S&P earnings, which are, some of which are global over this denominator of U.S. GDP. I don't think that makes sense as well. And the last thing, 20 or 30 years ago, we did not have private equity presence, any private equity presence remotely close to what we now have. I think we have probably $6 trillion or more in private equity. These are companies that many of which were public that are no longer. So you take that out. And I think it's just, it's just sort of muddying the water. Is the S&P expensive now compared to what it was? Yes, I think so. I don't think you need the denominator of the GDP to, to sort of muck up the picture. Yes, it's expensive. I know Guy totally disagrees, but... I think it's a, it's a red herring. Really? I would think that he'd be on, on the same page as you, Karen, only because, only because, because this is also known as a Warren Buffett indicator. This is something that, that one of the greatest investors uh, who's ever lived uses on a regular basis, Guy. And for that reason, I would have thought that you would have said yeah. this is bunk. <laughs> no, no, but, you know, I think Karen, to Karen's point, it's outdated as well. And I think mm. that's, listen, I happen to think Elon Musk must have went to a day of law school because when he tweeted that question, he knew the answer he was going to get 100%. There was something self-serving about that. And I think it sort of plays to the narrative that hmm. he's been talking about for a while. So I think I'm with Karen on this. Clearly, the market doesn't care. It's moved on. You know, it's, is it outdated? Yeah, maybe in this world, this global world that we're talking about, all the points that Karen brought up, maybe it is. With that said, um, even given that it's still elevated, the market doesn't seem to care, and the market doesn't care about these things until it does. But it's clear, you know, that 1.6, which probably, by the way, it's probably closer to 1.8, depending on the numbers you use, is, is a bit of a red herring, and it's something that the market looks completely past for at least the last six to eight months. Mm-hmm. 
Well, our next guest says a market pullback could happen at any moment, given current valuations. Let's bring in Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC. Lori, great to have you with us. So based on which metric do you think valuations are full? So we actually, we, we don't pick and choose. We have a combo model that bakes together 34 different metrics, and some of them are market cap weighted. Some of them um, are just equal weighted. We tend to use median multiples. It's sort of a bottom-up assessment evaluation. It brings in everything from price to book, price to sales, PEs, EV to EBITDA, you name it, we've got it in there. And um, it's telling you we're at, we're at pretty sky-high valuations if you just look at the S&P on its own relative to history. Um, so that does make us vulnerable to a pullback if we get the right catalyst to come along. But frankly, I've told my team that I, you know, while I, I expect a pullback at some point this year, I think the timing is very uncertain because it's very unclear what catalyst is going to knock that down or, or when it would actually happen. At the same time, I mean, you, you would use a pullback to go more into the reflation trade. So you believe that this is an area that will continue its gains? Yeah, and I think the market call right now is much easier from a bottom-up perspective as opposed to a top-down perspective. So when I kind of put the issue of frothy sentiment, frothy valuation aside, and I look at things like financials, I look at energy, I look at small cap, these are all areas that look deeply undervalued on a relative basis. They're also areas that tend to work when you're in that quote-unquote reflation part of the economy. So when inflation expectations are rising, bond yields are moving up. Um, so the question is really, is that trajectory going to continue? And I think we're kind of getting to an interesting point right now. We've all been talking about 2021. When does 2022 start to come into view? How much runway is there? So I've really tried to be clear with my team. We're not really concerned about repositioning our calls for you know, a 5%, 10% pullback that we might get in the market. We want to reload on these reflation trades uh, to get exposure for the longer term you know, sort of catalyst that we see there. Hey, Laurie, it's Tim. Agree on reflation for sure. And I want to get at where you just were on focus on 22 EPS, because to me, we've given mulligans for the last five quarters. Uh, when do yeah. we stop giving that mulligan when normalized earnings have to come back? Isn't that the time to sell or maybe just before that? So I think what's what's really weird right now about earnings expectations is that we're seeing these kind of mechanical upgrades to the numbers and dollar values, but the EPS growth rates aren't really getting lifted. So basically, you know, last year's numbers came in better than expected. People are bumping up this year's numbers and they're bumping up next year's numbers a little bit. It all offsets somehow. Um, you know, so it's basically like 9% earnings growth is, is kind of the consensus call for next year. The question, I think, to really get this market going again in a big way is whether or not you can boost that number. Can you get from 9%, 11% to 12%? And I think we're in kind of a weird period right now. I apologize for using the word weird, uh, but we're in this holding pattern right now where we've got these kind of inflationary pressures looming in the distance, which could eat into margins. But we've also got tremendous amounts of operating leverage coming out of the pandemic. We've got a GDP and revenue tailwind at our back, which is usually good for margins. So there are really conflicting cross currents right now. And I think investors, frankly, need more information um, to be able to get more bullish on earnings expectations. I don't think the market has enough information yet from an earnings perspective to make that call. We're going to get it soon, but we're not there quite yet. Laurie, it's Karen. Let me just ask you something about um, interest rates. We had a glimpse of what might happen when rates start to really move. Do you have some sort of cap in mind that uh, below which is fine, but then it starts to really affect multiples? 
Yeah, I, I will say that, you know, all the work that we have done points to a 10 year treasury yield at something north of 3%. Um, that would really, you know, kind of get you worried. And whether that's looking at the percent of stocks with a dividend yield in excess of the 10 year treasury, looking at, you know, sort of an earnings yield gap analysis, um, looking, frankly, at the historical moves, it tends to be about a 275 basis point move or higher in the 10 year treasury that spooks markets. Um, moves be below that, markets tend to be able to digest. Uh, we also just did an investor survey right before the long break and we asked investors frankly we said where do you think the 10-year treasury yield starts to become a problem and and expectations were kind of all over the place but two-thirds of our respondents said above two and a half percent um so that's telling you that you know there was all this focus on two percent one and a half percent this move is too far too fast even the people who are out there buying stocks a lot of them don't think that we've got some more runway that you can move before we start to pinch market valuations yeah and your model shows three percent right it's sort of the the line in the sand laurie yeah, we have yeah. one that shows 3.3%, one that shows 38 They're all sort of in that 3% mm -hmm. plus range. And, and I understand where people are coming at from the 2.5% number, right. because when you start to kind of get 3% into view, that's maybe when you want to take the risk off the table. Lori, great to see you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Lori Calvacina. Uh, Guy Dami, that's quite a runway if you go up to 2.5% mm. from where we are here. And then also the notion that inflationary pressures could be offset by operating leverage. We were just talking to Tom Lee about that yesterday who thinks that there's still tremendous operating leverage to be exercised by companies. Clearly the bull case. I mean, input costs, clearly uh, people looking past. And I'm not suggesting Lori saying this at all, but, you know, that, that move to 2.5%, depending on how quickly it happens. And by the way, I do think we're going to 2% in the 10-year. I don't think the market's just going to be ho-hum up until that point, and there's going to be this sort of uh, awakening at 2.5% where things fall off a cliff. So, I understand why people would suggest 2.5%. My concern all along has been the speed with which we've gotten to 1.7. I think we're going to see equal speed up to 2% over the next few weeks. We'll see if I'm right. Clearly, though, the market doesn't seem to care. It cared for about three days. It doesn't care now. Yeah, certainly didn't care yesterday when we had yields up and we had record high closes, Dan. Yeah, well, they don't care because they're looking at real yields, right? And so if the Fed's telling us that inflation, they're let it, ready to let it run a little hot, and then they're also saying it's a bit transitory, and you talk about operating leverage on the other side of things, and you look at where the 10-year yield is at 1.66 or so, you still have real yields that are negative. And I think that's probably a big part of Tom Lee's call here, is that if we're in a situation where what are the alternatives right now, equities still look very attractive relative to to yields and relative to inflation expectations. All right, coming up, a big win for sports betting. The ruling out of New York that could mean jackpot for a couple of names high in our radar. And take a look at how shares of Xilinx and AMD are faring this year. The two chip makers holding a special shareholder meeting tomorrow will hit the options market for that trade. Stick around, much more fast money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are watching the gambling stocks after hours uh, after New York State approved mobile sports betting with a limited operator model as part of the state's $200 billion budget plan. No official word on when it will go into effect. The online sports betting stocks finished the day uh, mixed. And in the extended hours, we are seeing a bid in DraftKings. Tim, I go to you on this one. Yeah, and, and it's, it's clearly a function of addressable market growth, and that's the linear almost formula that analysts are applying to where you price DraftKings, and it's on a 
price to sales basis and it's expensive. <laughs> you're, you're buying into the concept in this secular trend that, uh, look, it, it's what we saw with cannabis too. I mean, look at the states uh, that are legalizing sports betting and cannabis and, and the shortfalls that they're plugging. Uh, this makes a lot of sense. If you look at DraftKings, uh, basically, even during that high multiple hit from within the market of which companies were certainly most vulnerable, this one was, but um, that tr uptrend line from that huge secondary they did back in October, again, opportunistically at a high stock price, um, stocks held that even the bottom end of it. So I think it goes higher. Yeah. Guy? Yeah, $63 was the September, 63 and a half was at September 2020 high. Tim made the point that he sold off off that secondary. It sold off hard, by the way, but it recaptured it. I think you stay long this name against that September high, which comes in around 63 and change. All right. Coming up, the big bet on crypto. Coinbase releasing preliminary results ahead of a highly anticipated direct listing next week. We're breaking down the details next. And a powerhouse semi-deal, two chipmakers ready to join forces. We'll tell you how options traders are plugging into this one. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Coinbase giving investors one last peek at its financials before going public next week. Our Kate Rooney joins us now with the numbers. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Coinbase benefiting from the recent rally in Bitcoin. The crypto company putting out estimated earnings. In the first quarter, Coinbase reported roughly $1.8 billion in revenue. That's more than it made in all of last year and a ninefold increase from the same time a year earlier. The call did just wrap up CEO Brian Armstrong and CFO Alicia Haas didn't take any analyst questions. They did underline Bitcoin's role in that quarterly performance and its role in guidance going forward. Haas says that Coinbase's revenue is, quote, highly correlated with the price of Bitcoin and volatility. As she put it, we cannot forecast the price of Bitcoin any better than you can. And as a result, she says it's very difficult to accurately forecast their revenue. Coinbase, uh, as a result, Coinbase outlined three different scenarios, a high, a mid and a low range based on monthly transacting users. Some other highlights, the company is profitable. It's got 56 million verified users and a lot of growth on its institutional side. Coinbase now has $122 billion in assets from hedge funds, family offices and other professional money managers. That was up from $45 billion at the end of last year, and it's now about half of Coinbase's total assets. All eyes now are on Coinbase's direct listing on Wednesday of next week. Trading on the private market has uh, Coinbase's valuation pegged around $68 billion. And Bitcoin's market cap, meanwhile, topped $1 trillion this year. Uh, around this time last year, it was about $130 billion. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney, um, I was talking to an early investor in Coinbase not too long ago, and I said to him, what if you had invested the same dollar amount in Bitcoin versus Coinbase? Would you have made more money? And he said, absolutely. <laughs> he didn't say it regretfully. He just said it, you know, that he invested in Coinbase because part of it was understanding the process um, in terms of the crypto universe and understanding the possibilities there. He made a number of other investments, et cetera, et cetera. But for the average investor, I think that is the question. The question is, are you better off buying Coinbase as a public company or Bitcoin? Karen, what would you say? I, I would say Coinbase because you have clearly, clearly, clearly it is tied to Bitcoin, but not only tied to Bitcoin, right? Let's say another coin emerges to really, you know, let's say Ethereum or many different coins. 
right? So you have some diversification there. Bitcoin is tied to Bitcoin. I don't think it's tied to Coinbase, but the other way around. So I would have the less risk by a little more diversification, mm-hmm. Coinbase. Although but I, I am long Bitcoin, right. I'm not long Coinbase. <laughs> That's why I asked you. Um, um, but it is worth <laughs> noting that this moment in time, the correlation between Bitcoin and the other coins out there, I mean, the R-square is something like in the point nines for, for a Litecoin and for an Ether. And so, so you're not really getting a lot of diversification right now, but the point being that eventually those could... Um, diverge. That's a good point to make. Dan, what would you say in this game of Would You Rather? Oh, you know, I get confused by this game, Mel. Um, you know, I'd probably say right here, right now, <laughs> Coinbase, I think Bitcoin is obviously up 100% or close to that this year and up a lot more year over year. Um, but I just think that I, I would think about Coinbase a little bit of, about thinking about Charles Schwab 30 years ago, especially if you believe that most uh, assets that are going to be traded are going to be tokenized at some point in the future. I think you probably want to be with one of the first established players and Coinbase would be one. Weren't you going to say Robin Hood? Weren't you going to bring that up? I thought we had this whole thing, you know, we talked about this on the call. You, know, and you had this provocative, I, 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 provocative time. You were going to break the rule with my permission and bring up a third choice yeah. that I didn't even lay out to you. And that would be Robin Hood. No, but I, but it was a false choice. If you would ask me, like, so the point was, it was a good question. I guess I was thinking about it wrong. But if it, a, an interesting question might have been Robinhood, which is going to list pretty soon, or Coinbase right. is going to list pretty soon. I'd probably still go with, I'd actually get long Coinbase and short Robinhood. Oh, How's that to play your game? That's an interesting one. All right, I'm satisfied now. Let's move on. Coming up, <laughs> one chip maker is getting a whole lot of love from options traders today. We are breaking down the action ahead. Plus, the SPAC boom hits the tops. Tops with two Ps. We will tell you who is stepping up to the plate this time. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with Honeywell's John Waldron and rapper Will I Am on their collaboration for a new face mask. You heard that right. Catch that full interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. Well, we're watching shares of AMD and Xilinx. The two companies are holding a special shareholder meeting tomorrow as they look to finalize their $35 billion deal. And options traders are putting some bullish bets on one of these names. Let's bring in Mike Coe for, for more on that. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, maybe they're putting bullish uh, plays on both of these names because it's a stock deal. So AMD shares are been essentially the currency that's being used. And that's where we saw the bullish activity. Calls outpace puts by about three to one in AMD today. And the most active options were the 82 strike calls that expire at the end of this week. Over 18,000 of those traded for about a dollar. And that means that the call buyers were risking about 1.2 percent of AMD's current stock price to make bullish bets that the stock could go above that $82 strike by the end of the week. That would represent an increase of about 3% from where it's currently trading. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Um, Tim Seymour, where would you go in chips at this point? Well, it's interesting. You know, if you did, you you didn't ask me this, but if you'd asked me to do a would you rather on CEOs of Intel and and AMD. um, So, you know, you have a dynamic here where I think you really you you get you get Lisa Sue versus Pat Gelsinger. And I think right now this place in the cycle for the companies, I choose Intel. So maybe that's Mm -hmm. me answering your question. I I like this turnaround story. I realize it's not going to be reflective in in uh, in the next probably six quarters. Uh, But this is the investment we wanted to see out of Intel. This is a stock that's underperformed AMD massively, uh, given a lot of market share. And I think there's a lot ahead of them. 
Yeah, and Intel just unveiled a new uh, data center chip today, so that's one to watch. You sort of answered it. I'll let that slide. Um, Mike Co, thank you for that. For more options <laughs> action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, from bubblegum to blank checks, the latest company to get in on SPAC boom. Oh, NFTs are involved, too, in this one. Details next. Welcome back to Fast Money Tops. Best known for baseball cards and bazooka bubblegum is going public through a, you guessed it, SPAC. The deal values tops at $1.3 billion. So does this top the bubble in the SPAC space? I'm trying to think of other, you know, puns to throw in there. Uh, Tim? Um, look, I, I think we're in the early innings of this one, Mel. Um, and I think you have a case here where, where look, I, I think the SPAC structure, uh, I am actually a believer in it. I've been involved. I'm involved in one, and I, I've invested in them. Um, they're not all the same. You're investing in the team. You're obviously investing in the team that's going to find the right deal, and then you vote on it. There's a quick synopsis. So um, I'm a huge baseball fan. I've been collecting baseball cards since I was in seventh grade. I'm thrilled to hear that they're valuable again. Um, so off we go. A lot of Mets cards, I would imagine. A part of this team is a former <laughs> Disney CEO, Eisner guy, Dami. This is an interesting team. And by the way, they're venturing into NFTs now because why wouldn't you go public via SPAC and enter the NFT market? Because it's 2021. I think it's fantastic. He, Mike, he used to come on the show all the time back in the day, as you recall. He should come on again instead of going on with ARS and crew in the morning. Um, is it a sign of a top? No. Is it a sign that that bubblegum was horrendous? I think as Andrew Ross Sorkin was talking about and Joe Kernan this morning, absolutely. If they could retrofit that gum and put like bubblicious in it, I mean, then I'd even invest in that I think spec. the problem is that then it would stick to the card, right? And so that, that uh, would be so that's why uh. it's so, so rigid and, and not moist. Anyway, time for the final trade. Time's flown by. Tim Seymour, what do you say? Yeah, I think Morgan Stanley's 10% pullback. I know we've had a lot of conversations around Archegos. I think this is a pullback to buy into earnings on tremendous capital markets, but wealth management biz that stays strong. Karen. Yes, I'm looking for value back to Big Cap Pharma today. Merck. Dan. Yeah, guy power pitched AMD recently. I like it here. I think you play the underperformance versus the SMH. Guy. Great call on Gonzaga, Mel. Snap. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.